is one of my favorites. The Collective is amazing. So do tune in. It's 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online and archived at www.kpfa.org. It's 3 o'clock. Stay tuned for Jennifer Stone and Stone's Throw in the Cover to Cover slot. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school, get your money every Friday, happy endings are the rule, so divide up. In darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is December the 15th, the Ides of December. (laughs) Jingle bells. Ten days to go, yes. Uh, I think these calamitous times are more than people like me can handle. Oh, my solution is to climb back into bed and turn the electric blanket up to nine... My cat loves it. She just gets drunk. She lies on the on the heated blanket and puts all four limbs up in the air and just rolls around. I'm sure it's not healthy. <laughs> anyway, I'm afraid uh, the world is too much with me. I'm one of those who gives up at uh, the, <laughs> the the least the least bit of trouble i just take refuge in the poets uh you know um the people who see the human world as a total absurdity uh lately i've been trying to think in centuries you know that's easy what with the international situation being what it is uh this decade is certainly all hell and high water Somebody somewhere wrote a poem, and I can't find it. If anybody in the KPFA audience can find it, send it to me. It's called A Vision. I think that's the title. I think it's W.B. Yeats. It's about the millennium. Uh, each millennium, uh, well, first we have one that's Eastern and then Western and then Eastern and then Western. So anyway, that one has a, a prophecy saying that this new millennium, Definitely things will shift to the east. <laughs> you know, it is closing time in the gardens of the west. The gate just slammed shut. Anyway, things are winding down for some of us. The times they are a-changing. Uh, anyway, yes, the <laughs> flood waters rising. Men going mad with grief and rage, that seems natural to me, quite normal. Uh, even women going mad, uh, some of them just like me, going back to bed. Or anyway, uh, I know a number of women who don't think it's safe to leave the house. Uh, anyway, uh, I, I spent last night 
reading of all people, William Blake. And then I, I gave up on that and I, I burrowed into my shelf on children's books. Uh, before I get to the children's books, I want to, to read some of those next Tuesday for last minute presents. Remember all the old classics, yes. Let me just read you a little bit of Willie Blake, um, just so I can feel that I'm in touch with the uh, 18th century and 19th, right? Uh, you know, the great William Blake. He's the one, he wrote that masterpiece poem about, uh, oh gosh, I've forgotten it. Oh yes, there is a smile of love and a smile of deceit. And a smile of smiles in which both smiles meet. <laughs> Remember that one? That one got me through the first half of my life. No, I just looked up the marriage of heaven and hell because I was trying to reach a new synthesis. Yes, yeah, synthesis is my, my uh, goal in life. I want to put it all together <laughs> so that it makes nonsense. Uh, never mind. Uh, I'm one of those old, um, what do we call them, wordsmiths. I keep thinking that if I can get the right bunch of words in the proper order, all problems will be solved. But Willie Blake says that if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is. Infinite. Okay, right, right, that's right, Willie. Somebody, some Zen master tells us that, uh, yes, eternity is when we waken into the moment. I used to think that time did not exist, but I do. <laughs> That's different. Uh, Willie Blake says, for man has closed himself up till he sees all things through narrow chinks of his cavern. Had an old darling old professor in college who used to put that line next to uh, all that stuff about Plato's cave, you remember, where all we see is shadows of reality. Blake put it this way, for man has closed himself up till he sees all things through narrow chinks of his cavern. Well, there are two ways of looking at that. <laughs> I'm looking at uh, Blake's collection, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, and I have a little tiny book, but it has the it has a, a copy of the colored illustrations, the pictures that Blake did, and people used to think that they were, I believe the word is childlike. They are, of course, uh, sacred drawings. Uh, let me see. Let me read you a little bit more. Blake, ah, uh, yes. <laughs> the forms of the books that are arranged in libraries, watch out for those, yes. He says, the giants who formed this world, our world, into its sensual existence, and now seem to live in it in chains, are in truth the causes of its life and the sources of all activity, but the chains are the cunning of weak and tame minds, which have power to resist energy, according to the proverb. The weak in courage is strong in cunning. 
And then he goes on to talk about um, uh, being, being devouring. I remember an old pal of mine who used to say that we were all just biological units programmed to devour other biological units. And once we understood that, you know, everything would be easy, that is to say, you know. <laughs> he said, uh, what was it? Um, Love is just uh, the failure of the mind to understand nature, he said, yes. Uh, anyway, uh, Blake goes on to say that uh, there are two classes of men upon the earth always, and they should be enemies. Whoever tries to reconcile them seeks to destroy existence. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure about that either, yes, but I think he has a point. Uh, I think there's a gene for right-wingers, but never mind that. Blake goes on to say, religion is an endeavor to reconcile the two. Well, (laughs) it seems to me that in our time, religion is an endeavor (laughs) to divide the two. He says, no, Jesus Christ did not wish to unite but to separate them, as in the parable of sheep and goats. Anyway, he goes on at great length, and uh, I don't know, he says, by degrees, we beheld the infinite abyss, fiery as the smoke of a burning city. Beneath us, at an immense distance, was the sun, black but shining, and round it were fiery tracks on which revolved vast spiders, crawling after their prey which flew, or rather swum, in the infinite deep, in the most terrific shapes of animals sprung from corruption. The air was full of them and seemed composed of them. These are devils. These are called powers of the air. I now asked my companion, which was my eternal lot. He said, Between the black and white spiders... And he goes on, yes, uh, I don't know, good and evil, semantics is such a strange business. Uh, I don't know even um, whether Blake was quite mad. Uh, At the end of The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, he writes a song of liberty. Let me read you a little bit of that, and then... uh, (sighs) I think I'll do what Blake does. I'll go home and... And uh, go back to watercolors, maybe an image, uh, a bit of paint color is better than any of the words that we struggle with. Here's Blake's A Song of Liberty. The eternal female groaned. It was heard over all the earth. Albion's coast is sick silent. The American meadows faint. Shadows of prophecy shiver along by the lakes and the rivers and mutter across the ocean. Golden Spain burst the barriers of old Rome. Cast thy keys, O Rome, into the deep downfalling, even to eternity downfalling and weep. In her trembling hands, she took the newborn terror, howling. On those infinite mountains of light, 
How barred out by the Atlantic sea, the newborn fire stood before the starry king. Flagged with gray-browed snows and thunderous visages, the jealous wings waved over the deep. The fire, the fire is falling. Look up, look up, O citizen of London, enlarge thy countenance, O Jew. Leave counting gold, return to thy oil and wine. O African, black African, go winged thought. Widen his forehead, the fiery limbs, the flaming hair. Shot like the sinking sun into the western sea. Waked from his eternal sleep, the hoary element roaring fled away, down rushed, beating his wings in vain, the jealous king, his gray-browed counselors, thunderous warriors, curled veterans, among helms, shields, chariots, horses, elephants, banners, castles, slings, and rocks, falling, rushing, ruining, Buried in the ruins, all night beneath the ruins, then their sullen flames faded, emerge round the gloomy king, with thunder and fire, leading his starry hosts through the waste wilderness. He promulgates his ten commands, glancing his beamy eyelids over the deep. In dark dismay, where the sun of fire in his eastern cloud, while the morning plumes her golden breast, spurning the clouds written with curses, stamps the stony law to dust, loosing the eternal horses from the dens of night, crying, Empire is no more. Now the lion and wolf shall cease. Let the priests of the raven of dawn no longer in deadly black, with hoarse note, curse the sons of joy, nor his accepted brethren, whom tyrant he calls free, lay the bound or build the roof, nor pale religious lechery call that virginity that wishes but acts not for every thing that lives is holy yep all of it all of it song of liberty from good old william blake <laughs> yes the fire next time i don't know it seems to me that water is good enough for now uh Drowning, yes, we will all be underwater soon. Anyway, I thought maybe I would give up on Doomsday. Uh, I have a wonderful book about uh, uh, Doomsday Crone. I'll save it for New Year's. <laughs> yes, the, the Doomsday Crone, she has things in mind for us. She's got a plan. Anyway, I'll spend the rest of my uh, half hour today... Uh, on children's books. Yes, childhood is the kingdom where nobody dies. This is Jennifer Stone uh, talking at you about uh, 
things to buy for Christmas. I just worry that people are buying all videos. Now, it's okay to get the video or the movie along with the book. Mostly children go from the the uh, video to the book these days, you know. But um, there's no reason why you can't do them both at once. Uh, Where the Wild Things Are is out there in the theaters, Maurice Sendak's famous book uh they've made that one into a new movie and that looks like an instant classic to me yes uh the list is so long i made a list once and several people asked me for it i can't find it i'll see if i can locate it at home and bring it next week but i think it it really depends you have to sit down and think carefully about the particular child you have in mind There are some children who wouldn't read Mary Poppins on a bet. There are other little girls who adore uh, Mary Poppins. P.L. Travers is the author of the Mary Poppins series, and I find that they're fairly reasonable. I have a little $6 copy here. Uh Uh-huh. $6. Good deal. For the original Mary Poppins by P.L. Travers. Uh... She has a wonderful biography. Then um, there is the great, the great Beatrix Potter. There's a movie about Beatrix Potter. I think Renee Zellweger put that one together. Not outstanding, but interesting. Very interesting. The great Beatrix Potter was a remarkable woman who she used her money, what she made from the Peter Rabbit series, all those wonderful rabbit books. She bought uh, farms all over England. I think as many as 40 farms, and she put them in trust to the nation. Uh, Now, that's about as green a writer as you're ever going to find. That's Beatrix Potter, Peter Rabbit series. Uh, What else have I got in my basket here? Heidi, you remember Heidi? Joanna Spry, last name S-P-Y-R-I, Joanna Heidi. Now, some people think, that this is a book about old men and little girls. <laughs> and they make prurient remarks. Oh, what a horrible age we live in. I I was thinking the other day that that's uh, true. Someone laughingly told me that when the uh, Hayes Code, the censorship code in Hollywood, decided that Mae West was too lascivious for general audiences, you know, the great Mae West, her uh, sexual innuendos, they said, were... Not good for um, the people. So they changed, uh, they got rid of Mae West and you, Shirley Temple, right? Uh, the movie, when I saw it, uh, Shirley Temple's Heidi, was shattering to me. I was a little tiny kid, I guess, eight or nine. And uh, once again, it's the story of an orphan, always an orphan. You know, we're kind of short on female orphans. Mostly we have Oliver Twist and... And uh, David Copperfield and those guys. But uh, the first chapter of Heidi, when little Heidi goes up to the Alm uncle, to this person who is a loving father, uh, and everybody's scared of him, you know, but of course his heart and uh, soul are won over by this beautiful little child. And uh, it is a love story. And for those people who hunger all their lives for a loving father, uh, It's quite a read. I had trouble with it, of course, because to me, fathers were often a clear and present danger. 
But this book introduced me to the concept that there could be a uh, profoundly loving father figure in one's life, even if he didn't tell too many stories, actually. (laughs) I don't know. Heidi is available everywhere. And, you know, the old classics are always uh, A.A. Milne's Winnie the Pooh books, exhaustive study of, I'm looking here at my favorites, uh, all the Winnie the Pooh books. My favorite character was always Eeyore. Uh, he's the one who's kind of gloomy, you know. He always finds the dark side. He's grousing. Uh, I remember once, I accused my younger son of acting a little bit like Eeyore, and I noticed that he was deeply wounded. He was quite offended. Obviously, he understood uh, the characterization and hurt his feelings. I I uh, remember thinking that um, uh, the Winnie the Pooh books were out of date back in the 60s. <laughs> and then I waited another generation and changed my mind again. I tried to use them in a preschool, and uh, um, the instructor said, oh, you just like those books, you know, you like them because you were raised on them, and therefore you expect your children to like them. I said, well, yeah, that's sort of the way it goes. Uh, (laughs) I don't know. Uh, I have uh, a collection of the very latest children's books, and I'm going to work on them and decide what I really think in one of these days. I'll go at it, but uh, I was getting on the bus today, and I sat down uh, on the bench with a young woman, and I asked her, I said, can you remember offhand, what were your favorite children's books? What are your favorite children's books? And she shook her head, sort of, and she said, well, I I don't have any children. And I said, no, I mean your own favorites, the ones you remember. And she thought a minute, then she said she couldn't remember the title. She thought it was one story about a witch. A witch witch, I said, you know. (laughs) There were so many. I thought, that's curious that someone does not have at their fingertips a list of all the mighty myths that uh, came into their life in the first, oh, let's say the first... 12 years, uh, hard to know, uh, maybe, maybe the films, uh, give people large, um, iconic archetypes, uh, probably the superheroes, uh, I don't know, anyway, it seems to me that, uh, children's books, what is it, uh, are more, what is it, they are more profound because they are, of course, (laughs) they are without precedent. They are unique. I was looking at a huge collection of illustrations from 19th century uh, children's books the other day, and I realized that these were my first images. I did not have the movies, not until I was quite a bit older. I think my first movie I was... uh, six or seven years old, but without television, without film, uh, the first images, the large pictures in my mind would have been, oh, say, the illustrations of Arthur Rackham in The Little Mermaid, something like that. 
These are the first uh, imprints, we call that, yes, the first imprints, and therefore they had a uh, stunning effect. (laughs) I think the basic story, some people don't think it's very important, but the basic the basic uh, children's story that comes to us from, well, the films is uh, The Wizard of Oz. And I spent so many years criticizing it that I'm willing to go back on my word and say that maybe, maybe there was something to it and maybe there is still something to it. Uh, I dug out my book uh, the other day, a centennial edition in which they include essays by Gore Vidal, Ray Bradbury, John Updike, all these people uh, who seem to feel a special nostalgia for the land of Oz and its creator, Frank Baum. It's interesting. Uh, Here's what Gore Vidal says. He says, I spent a good deal of my youth in Frank Baum's land of Oz. I have a precise tactile memory of the first Oz book that came into my hands. It was the original 1910 edition of the Emerald City of Oz. I still remember the look and the feel of those dark blue covers, the evocative smell of dust and old ink. I also remember that I could not stop reading and rereading the book. Reading is not the right word. In some mysterious way, I was translating myself to Oz, a place which I was to inhabit for many years. With the Emerald City, I became addicted to reading. And uh, this chapter, this essay, uh, goes on to talk about many other writers who were particularly fond of uh, Oz. Uh, The... uh, (laughs) The introduction to this book says that Frank Baum is a small and inconsequential flower blooming in the shade of Shakespeare. And uh, he says, I suppose I will be reviled for mentioning them in one paragraph. But both lived inside their heads with a mind gone wild with wanting, wishing, hoping, shaping, dreaming. There, if in no other place, they touch fingertips. In a world where books are machine-made for age groups and pass through dry parchment uh, analysts' hands before being pill-fed to kids. Baum deserves a special place he is needed because when the cities die, in their present form at least, and when we head out into Eden again, which we must and will, Baum will be waiting for us. And if the road we take is not yellow brick, why, damn it, we can imagine that it is even as we imagine our wives beautiful and our husbands wise and our children kind until such day as they echo that dream. (laughs) It's a nice introduction to this uh, original copy. I love the pictures, especially the, yeah, the 1910 version. Uh... I went and colored mine, of course. My oldest book, they were all full of watercolors. Uh, pretty awful. Um, anyway, this book goes on. Uh, gives you a lot of wonderful details about Frank Baum, 
particularly about his mother, mother-in-law, pardon me, Matilda Gage. His wife's mother was one of the most famous feminists of the age. And uh, together with his wife, they persuaded him to publish his fantasies. Uh, this formidable mother-in-law mixed spiritualism and Buddhist and Hindu beliefs. <laughs> which rejected the darker, devil-acknowledging side of Christianity. Baum was into the God is nature and nature God. He wanted to create a new fantasy world for the children and get away from the grim fairy tales that most of us were raised on. You know, the dark fairy tales of the... Uh, medieval Germans. I'll be back on the air, I think, Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. This has been Jennifer Stone. If you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. The ones who walk in light Light them up, boys There's your picture Drop the shadow I'm Luis Medina, KPFA's music director. I wanted to thank you for listening to KPFA and for supporting all the fine music programming that is offered to you all year long. These programs are brought to you by dedicated volunteer on-air staff who share their passion, knowledge, expertise, and love of the music. If you haven't yet become a member of KPFA, it's not too late to join the KPFA family. Just go to kpfa.org. Your year-end gift of financial support not only helps KPFA, but it is also tax-deductible. Please consider joining KPFA by December 31st. It is tax-deductible and will make you feel good inside.